Taking a jab at Facebook, Yahoo has done a pretty big rebrand of their main news app, which is yet another attempt to dethrone Facebook as a dominant platform for consuming news. In addition, Yahoo has been under fire for allegedly scanning emails and handing them over to U.S. intelligence. So that's fun. Important information to know if you're a Yahoo user. Also, today we'll jump into responsive web design. I'll give a brief introduction into what it is, if you're not already familiar with it, and why it is no longer optional for your website. All this and more today on the Rightly Design Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is the Rightly Designed Show. So Yahoo has definitely been in the news recently, even though it is itself a source for news. Uh, And one of the big things that they've changed recently is they've done a pretty big rebrand of their main app. And their goal, as a lot of people are speculating, is to try to be a lot more like Facebook, or at least to begin to compete with Facebook as being a news aggregate. So as you probably know, quite a few people use Facebook not only to interact with friends, but increasingly to actually read and consume news and content in general across the web. So Yahoo has has gone into kind of a rebranding mode. And during that, they've actually even taken some veiled hits at Facebook throughout that. So here's a quick clip. Uh, and this is just the audio from a uh, an ad they recently have been running. Uh, about this new app or this update to their app that they're running, and it's called Yahoo Newsroom. So here's that. News isn't one-sided. It sparks debate and provokes conversation. That's why we created the Yahoo Newsroom app, designed to bring you everything going on in the world while being smart enough to learn the stuff you're into. Explore topics that are important to you with people who share your interests, not friends on social media. Join communities that we call Vibes, a forum where you read, react, and debate topics you care about. Yahoo Newsroom. Build stories. Follow the vibe. So as you can see, Yahoo is definitely trying to up their game in terms of getting more people to be active users on their platform. As of now, they've mainly been, you know, they've got Yahoo Mail and they're a search engine and then they've got news, but they've been fairly passive and their brand hasn't really been one that's very, you know, engaging in terms of building a user base and that sort of thing. Uh, So here's just a quick snippet to add a little bit to that. Here's just a a quick snippet from the next web, which gives a little bit more detail. And it says, Yahoo is rebranding its main app as Yahoo Newsroom. The new app will have a heavier focus on, you guessed it, news with a bit of community building twist. The change is a follow-up on a redesigned Yahoo's homepage and app back in January. There's an explore tab where you can elect to follow topics called Vibes. Like pretty much everything else these days, the app uses machine learning to help determine the best stories to show you 
and the more you read, the better your recommend recommendations will be. Perhaps the most interesting bit is that you can actually post your own article recommendations to individual vibes. The vibes essentially become their own communities where you can read, discuss, and debate topics with people who might share common interests. That makes the newsroom a bit more akin to Facebook newsfeed than your standard news aggregator, allowing users to shape the conversation around topics they care about, but hopefully with less of a haphazard and low-quality content so, prevailed, uh, so prevalent on social media. So Yahoo is definitely trying to jump into the social media sphere. We know Google's kind of attempted this on their own with Google+, and that didn't really go too far. Facebook has kind of remained the dominant factor. Twitter still remains as well, but a lot less for news and for content. Facebook kind of seems to, again, become dominant in that. So this is Yahoo's goal to kind of rebrand themselves and to launch a new avenue into the news sphere. They're kind of trying to, they're trying to create a new spin off of, again, as it mentions in this article, you know, just doing an actual news aggregate where you just have people just kind of selecting articles for you to read as is traditional with media. And then, you know, uh, something apart from the norm of social media, which is just pretty much everybody promoting themselves. And you just have a massive, massive flow of just low quality content. So their goal is, is to find kind of a happy medium between the two, I guess you could say. So we'll see how that goes. It's uh, it's interesting to keep an eye on, especially if, if you are in the news industry or if you do publish content regularly. This may be something to keep an eye on, even for something, uh, another avenue through which you can promote your own articles and things like that as well. It's also interesting to see and to watch a lot of these different tech giants, software companies, try to reposition themselves and continually rebranding themselves as everything continues to change in this digital age. Uh, and right now, everybody kind of seems to be competing with Facebook. Uh, but another uh, story came up not too long ago regarding Yahoo. And this has just kind of been as we do get more and more of these services that collect information, you know, there always is the added concern with security and that sort of thing. And so there was an interesting, another article, this is also in the next web, and I'm going to post links to all these in the show notes. If you like, so if you'd like to check them out in detail, you can do that at rightlydesignshow.com slash 29. And again, worth checking out, especially if you're a Yahoo user. But uh, Yahoo is actually, according to a report that appeared in Reuters, um, they actually... According to this report, they've been secretly scanning email and handing over the information in these private email conversations to U.S. intelligence. So you might be wondering, so why is that a concern? For most people, would be able to see that as a concern right off, right off the bat because that's not something that people are supposed to be doing. Obviously, you need to have a court order, and there's legal ramifications in that. But the bigger concern that a lot of people have been voicing recently is security. If they are scanning all of this information and if they're making it available, readily available, you know, for something like this situation, then it, the question kind of begs to be answered, which is that, okay, well, what is going to prevent someone else, you know, some hacker from getting in there and then getting a hold of all this information? So here's just a quick snippet from an article just so you have an idea of what actually took place if you're not already aware. 
It says, for years, Yahoo has been scanning the email of unknown users and then turning this information over to the U.S. intelligence agencies. Citing sources familiar with the matter, Reuters broke the story today that Yahoo is complicit in breaching the privacy of millions of potential users, even beyond its recent hack. The company complied with U.S. intelligence direct, uh, directive that saw millions of Yahoo Mail accounts scanned in near real time as opposed to the stored message scanning relied on most commonly. This breach seemingly targeted millions of users, all of which were unaware they were being monitored. In fact, complicit may be the wrong word. Yahoo actively built a tool that enabled this sort of co covert surveillance on its users. According to two former employees, Yahoo... Uh, CEO Marissa Mayer ordered the company's compliance, a move that led to the departure of Chief Information Security Officer Alex Stamos's departure. Three other familiar with the matter reported the order uh, uh, reported the order came in the form of a classified directive sent to Yahoo's legal team. Uh, bulk data collection on U.S. phone and internet companies is nothing new. Government officials and private surveillance experts claim they've not seen such a broad directive for real-time collection on the web. So I mentioned this and I bring this up, number one, just to be aware of it. Obviously, if you are a Yahoo user, it's always good to know what's just kind of being, you know, exported or kind of, in this case, what's kind of outside the norm for this specific instance is the fact that it's it was actually being collected live in a way that hasn't hasn't actually been documented up to this point. So this is kind of uh, unprecedented in terms of data collection. But number two, it's just to be aware of the fact that data collection is kind of becoming part of the mainstream with a lot of big companies. So it's just always something to keep in mind when you're working, you know, if you're going to host all of your company email on Gmail or if you're going to uh, do it on Yahoo or any of these other things. It's always important to at least keep that in mind. And, you know, this is just from my personal perspective. It's, it's always nice whenever possible to try some sort of more secure and kind of privatized version. Not that these aren't privatized, but meaning something that is a company that, really strives to keep your privacy and everything and security intact. Because again, as I mentioned a little bit previously, one of the big concerns that gets floated out there when data collection, when, you know, these big companies are getting so, I guess you could say almost greedy in the sense that of how much data they're collecting, the concern is always going to be, you know, the security of that, you know, you have to entrust them with the security of all that data that they're collecting. Number one, do you know that it's being collected? Number two, are they taking the proper means to ensure that it's all being kept safe and secure? This is all important because if you're building a business, if you're building a brand, if you're doing all the things that are required to be able to, you know, you know, grow a company or again, a brand or something like that, it's very important that you're able to rely upon the services that you're using. So there's a lot of services out there that you can use, and in fact, this isn't uh, this isn't an affiliate promotion or anything. But uh, if the, if you're looking for more of like a private or a private and secure way to do email, uh, Hushmail is a great service that you can use. I've personally used it for years and years. So again, there's a lot of things that you can use that are that will kind of put security first when it comes to handling, especially if you're dealing with clients or prospects or customers. It's always great to be able to keep those things secure and to always kind of have the peace of mind that they're going to take extra added precautions to ensure that everything is kept secure. Uh, you know, moving forward. So anyways, interesting news, uh, if nothing else.
Uh, definitely things to keep in mind. And uh, also interesting to see, you know, kind of backtracking a little bit to the previous story, also interesting to see Yahoo beginning to fight and to compete a bit with Facebook in the realm of news. So all definitely interesting to keep in mind and to consider moving forward. Okay, so today's main topic is responsive web design. But before I get to that, I wanted to take a quick moment to mention our sponsor, and that is Media Temple. So we talked a little bit today about security. One of the great things I like about Media Temple, Media Temple offers WordPress, uh, premium WordPress hosting, is that they offer a number of their own security benefits uh, for your web hosting. So they have DDoS and intrusion protection. They have automatic WP core updates. They've got 30-day backup and restore. They also offer uh, built-in SSL certificates, which enable you to secure your website. So if you're ever going to offer the ability for people to uh, pay you or you know, if you're running an online shop or you need to accept payments, they enable you to really easily set up an SSL certificate. Uh, integrated within your WordPress website or whatever type of website you're wanting to host. So I've been using them for a while. They've got by far the best user experience I have ever worked with. Typically, these hosting companies have terrible interfaces. They're horrible to navigate, uh, and their hosting is a lot of times not really uh, geared toward an actual WordPress hosting environment. So uh, Media Temple's WordPress hosting actually has built-in caching. As I mentioned, they do the automatic updates. They also do the 30-day backup, and they've got great support. So I highly recommend you check it out if you don't already have hosting or if you're looking to switch. They've got a really easy-to-use migration feature where you can actually migrate your current WordPress website with a couple of clicks over to Media Temple. So check that out today at rightlydesign.com slash mediatemple. And again, that's rightlydesigned.com slash media temple. Design, branding, marketing, WordPress. Helping you build a better brand through the fusion of form and function. This is the Rightly Designed Show. Okay, so today's main topic is responsive web design. So it's likely you've heard this this phrase used before. It's pretty common among you know a lot of theme websites and a, among a lot of developers. You'll hear this phrase get tossed around quite a bit, and it's actually been around since about, since around 2011 is is when I remember seeing it become kind of mainstream. And I personally have been developing all my websites responsively since about 2012 2011 as i mentioned is kind of when it when it kind of the idea started becoming more prevalent and then so 2011 2012 is about when i started personally doing pretty much all of my websites completely responsive but we're at a day and age now where it's become prominent but not everybody has a responsive website so before i go into that though let's dive into what a responsive website is so to do that, I've just got a quick snippet from an article that actually was written back in 2011, which details it pretty well. So it's just a section of it from, and it's on Smashing Magazine. Again, if you'd like to read this in its entirety, I recommend it, and you can find that in today's show notes. But it says, Ethan Marcotte wrote an, uh, an introductory article about the approach responsive web design for a list apart. It stems from the notion of responsive architectural design, whereby a room or space automatically adjusts to the number and flow of people within it. 
says, quote, recently an emergent dis uh, discipline called responsive architecture has begun asking the physical spaces has begun asking how physical spaces can respond to the presence of people passing through them. Through a combination of embedded robotics and ten uh, tensile materials, architects are experimenting with art installations and wall structures that bend, flex, and expand as crowds approach them. Motion sensors can be paired with climate control systems to adjust a room's temperature and ambient lighting as it fills with people. Companies have already produced smart glass technology that can automatically become opaque when a room's occupants reach a certain density threshold, giving them an uh, additional layer of privacy. So transplant this discipline into web design, and we have a similar yet whole new idea. Why should we create a custom web design for each group of users? After all, architects, uh, architects don't design a building for each group size and type that passes through it. Like responsive architecture, web design should automatically adjust. It shouldn't require countless custom-made solutions for each new category of users. Obviously, we can't use motion sensors and robotics to accomplish this the way a building would. Responsive web design requires a more abstract way of thinking. However, some ideas are already being practiced. Fluid layouts, media queries, and scripts that can reformat web pages and markup effortlessly or automatically. But responsive web design is not only about adjustable screen resolutions and automatically resizable images, it's rather about a whole new way of thinking about design. Let's talk about all these features plus additional ideas in the making. So again, I mentioned that's from uh, Smashing Magazine, and that's back in 2011 when this was starting to become more prevalent in the design community specifically, and so it's kind of followed uh, back into it, it's kind of followed you know into the mainstream of what most websites do in today's day and age so to kind of recap what is responsive web design i know there's kind of a lot of, of technical information kind of mixed in there and of course there was the uh there was the architecture parallel drawn as well but what it is in essence a responsive web design is a a website that's coded in such a way as to respond to the size of the screen in which it is it is contained. So if you're viewing this website on a TV, it will look differently than if you're viewing it on a tablet or, or on a desktop or on a laptop. If you pull out your phone and you look at this website, it's going to change again. The layout will change. A lot of times images will adjust. Font text sizes will change. Sometimes elements will be removed completely. Sometimes elements will be added. So if you if you look at a responsive website, you'll see it begin to change and to shift uh, the way it's laid out to be uh, expedient for that specific size in which you're viewing it. So in a nutshell, that's what a responsive web design is. Now you may have heard, or you may have actually seen before, and they're still fairly common. Uh, you may have heard of a mobile version of a website. A responsive web design is different than a mobile version of a website. A mobile version of a website is an actual duplicate or a copy of a website, so to speak. So it's not that it necessarily responds or changes. For example, a, a responsive website is all one website. Uh, it's just coded in such a way as to adapt. It's to adapt based upon the screen size through which it's being viewed or the context through which it's being viewed. Now, a mobile version, on the other hand, typically will be set up in such a way as to detect if you're on a mobile device. So if you're on a mobile device, 
So say, for example, you've got mywebsite.com. You pull out your, your smartphone, your iPhone, Android, whichever type of device you have. You visit mywebsite.com. Uh, a lot of times what would happen is it would detect that you are currently viewing this on a mobile device and it would redirect you to m.mywebsite.com or mobile.mywebsite.com, a subdomain, a completely different version of the website for a mobile device. And then sometimes they'll put like a link at the bottom or something that says view this on a desktop. So that's the difference between a responsive website and a mobile version of a website. Which then begs the question, should my website be responsive? And my answer to this at this point in time is about a 99.99% time yes. There's very, very rarely a case when it should not be. And today it's becoming more and more important for sites to be responsive. You know, you could say maybe 10 years ago or, you know, seven or eight years ago when smartphones weren't nearly as prevalent as they are today, then maybe you could get away with having a desktop only version or with having a mobile version of your website. But today in this day and age, it is absolutely essential. And here's why. I've actually referred to the some of these stats in a previous episode, uh, actually in episode 11. Um, and it's from a, pre, a Pew Research study. And here's, here's kind of some of the bullet points from that study. And it says 10% of Americans own a smartphone but do not have any other form of high-speed internet access uh, at home before their phone's data, data plan. So what that means is that you have 10% of the American population right now that is relying solely on their smartphones, not only for internet access, um, but also for internet browsing in general. That means that they have no other avenue to even view your website outside of what they can see on their smartphone. So that's 10%. That's a fairly high percentage uh, when you think of how many people that actually encompasses. Using a broader measure of the, of the access options available to them, 15% of Americans own a smartphone, but say that they have a limited number of ways to get online other than their cell phone. So again, you up that to 15% of people say they have limited access to a way of a way to access the internet outside of that smartphone. So again, this is very important to keep in mind. Uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with you know, a web uh, that is ever evolving, and especially with the number of smartphones out there in general, these are these are definitely important to keep in mind. Some other stats: sixty-eight uh, percent of smartphone owners use their phone at least occasionally to follow along with breaking news events, with thirty-three percent saying that they do this frequently. Sixty-seven percent use their phone to share pictures, videos, and commentary. Uh, about events happening in their community, with 35% doing so frequently. 56% use their phone at least occasionally to learn about community events or activities, with 18% doing this frequently. There also has been an uptick uh, in the number of people who are reading books and doing more browsing on tablets as well. So tablets are also on the rise. So you have smartphones, tablets, and you have a, and you just have even in the market in general, you have a wide variety of devices that are that are coming into the market every single day. So that kind of leads me into my next point, which is that you know because a lot of people might be wondering, okay, so you know what's the big deal then with just 
doing a risk, you know, just using like an extra plugin for my website or just having a mobile version of my website created. So there's a number of different problems with this avenue. The first being that, again, just doing a mobile version cuts out a huge swath of the other users who are going to be using tablets or smaller screens, or even people are going to be viewing it on a TV. So sometimes it might be advantageous to even uh, have your website adapt to a really large screen size as well as uh, something even larger than a desktop. So there's, we're reaching a point in time where devices are so numerous that, that, div- that simply you know, creating one more version of your site only captures you know, maybe 10, 15, 20% of what the, the vast population is actually using and viewing. So, and that can have a huge, uh, that can have a huge impact on things like usability and, you know, accessibility for the different content on your site, which can make, you know, uh, a dramatic impact on how likely people are to return to your site, how well people are going to interact with it, and overall, how they're going to perceive you and your brand. So to kind of recap on that point, should your website be responsive? And the answer is absolutely yes. So some of the things to consider, and these are, these are definitely things to consider if, uh, for your current website or if you're considering getting a new website built, is, you know, put yourself, and I, I know I, I say this a lot through a lot of past episodes, but it, it's probably the, the best advice when it comes to usability, but put yourself in your user's shoes. And there's, you know, there's always things that you can consider, you know, when you're viewing your website through on a mobile device or on a smartphone per se, and then on a tablet and something else, the context of somebody using that specific device, how can you arrange the content and the information uh, to be you know, most advantageous to that person at that time? So here's an example. Um, so like, for example, I've developed a website for an online coffee distributor. So they sell like, uh, they sell a number of different uh, coffee products and they service a number of different coffee shops and, and they do delivery and all that sort of thing. Well, it's very a big part of their company is is their customers being able to get in touch with them. So they've got, you know, on the desktop version of their site, they've got the phone number big and bold so people can see and place an order or they can, you know, get support or that sort of thing. But then what happens is it's I've actually designed into that website the ability to, you know, when you're viewing it on a smartphone, that phone number goes away and it turns into a phone icon. And so when you actually tap that phone icon, it automatically asks if you want to call. So little things like that can make a huge difference and are all things that we, you know, that are important to take into consideration. It goes far beyond, as that article from Smashing Magazine highlighted, it goes far beyond fonts changing and images changing. It goes into the, to putting ourselves into the user's, into the user's shoes and considering how can I make that view, you know, for that device or for this screen size, the most effective and efficient for the people viewing them as possible. And what this is going to begin to do is it's going to create a user experience that can set you apart from everyone else. If you just, if you take the time to consider these and to put these things into practice. So, as I mentioned, there was this, the phone example. There's also, you can integrate, you know, a good thing to do as well is to kind of restructure the content accordingly. If you're like a brick and mortar location, 
and you say you've got a shop, again, nine times out of 10, if somebody is visiting your website on a smartphone and you're a brick and mortar shop, they want to know your hours, they want to know where you're located, and they want to know how to call you. So something that you can do is you can take those things when you're viewing your website on a smartphone and make those things prominent and make them maybe a little less prominent on a desktop. On the desktop, you can maybe highlight your latest promotion. You can uh, you, you can highlight, uh, you know, even blog articles or social media or things that people are more likely to do on a desktop. Same thing applies for a tablet. I know one of the things I've done on the tablet view of my own website is I've made it a little bit more reader friendly. Uh, meaning if you go to an article on rightlydesign.com and you view it through a tablet, the font size is nice and large and it adapts so that there's a nice margin on either side. And it's been created in such a way as to keep in mind that most people, when they're using a tablet, just want to be able to read. So I've designed it in such a way as to get all the junk, all the clutter, and keep it out of the way, make it nice and clean so that it's just easy to read and to consume that content. So to kind of recap a little bit, responsive web design isn't in, it's no longer just an option. It's something that has become a requirement for every website. And the bare minimum is that it adapts to all the different screen sizes. But something that you can do, especially if you are a web developer, or even if you're just working with a web developer or a web designer, something that you can keep in mind is always putting yourself in the other person's shoes and to kind of rethink the way that websites work. I mean, websites have been rapidly evolving and you're going to put yourself leagues ahead of anyone else if you're just taking the time to consider this. So if, you, uh, if you'd like to, if you're kind of wondering, like, is my website responsive? Because a lot of people will go out and they'll buy, you know, WordPress themes, that sort of thing, and they won't even necessarily know for sure if their website is responsive. Uh, I know I personally develop WordPress themes, as you may know, already over at a site called Notable Themes. Dot com, and every single theme that I create is fully responsive. So that's just, as I mentioned, that's just kind of become a normal part of my workflow. But you may be wondering, you know, is my website responsive? Or, or maybe you just want to know in general, you want to go to other websites out there and see, you know, how well do they, does their website work responsively? So there's a, a, a nice tool out there that you can use called responsivetest.net. So you can just go to responsivetest.net. And again, if it's easier, you can go to the show notes of this article and I've got a link to it. But what this allows you to do is it's a nice little tool where you can just enter in any, any website address into this tool once you're on this website and you can actually click to specific screen sizes. So if you say, I wanna see what this looks like on a 27 inch iMac, it will resize to show you how to look on that specific screen size. Same thing on you know, an iPhone 6S or you know, an Android or a Samsung Galaxy. And so it'll adapt to all these different specific, specific screen sizes so you can see it all right there within your browser. Uh, you have to do some scrolling if your, you know, your browser is smaller than the device you're using it on, you're trying to view it through. But uh, it's a great way to be able to take a look at other websites and to be able to see, you know, who has been adopting responsive web design, who's been doing it well, how can you know, what can you learn from it, that sort of thing. And you can even just take a look at your own website to see if perhaps there's some different ways that can be uh, adjusted or improved to make each specific device or orientation to be that much more effective. Another tool you can use, if you happen to work on a Mac, this is actually the one I prefer personally. If you work on a Mac and you've got Safari, 
you can just install or activate, I should say. You should be able to activate in the preferences. You should be able to uh, you should be able to activate their developer tools. So majority of those things you won't really need. So they'll have things you so you know you can see source code of web pages and things like that. But uh, they also have uh, something called responsive design mode. So what you can do is you can click that, and then it enables you to just start viewing the website through any uh, Apple product. So that's kind of the caveat. Obviously, it's Safari is an Apple product, so you'll only be able to view you know Apple products. But it's still really interesting to work with, and you can see all those different screen sizes. Uh, you can also re uh, you can also resize those. So if you ever want to see, you know, in something bigger than like uh, an Apple display, you can see it that way. Similar concept to the responsive test.net, but really interesting and useful uh, to check out. So hopefully you found that useful and that gives you a little bit of insight into what uh, responsive web design is and how it's going to start affecting you know, moving forward, how much more it's going to start affecting the way that websites actually are designed and how they're used. So very important. If you don't already have a responsive website, it's definitely something that you'll want to uh, take into consideration, especially as mobile usage just continues to surge. So hopefully, again, found that useful. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about responsive web, uh, responsive web design, if you want to learn about it a little bit more from like a technical perspective and some of the te- uh, the techniques that are involved in responsive website design, there's actually a book out by uh, a book apart, and it's just called Responsive Web Design, and it's been out for a while. If you'd like to check that out, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes, and that's just uh, rightlydesignedshow.com slash 29. So I do appreciate you taking the time to listen to The Rightly Designed Show, and we'll see you next week. Enjoying The Rightly Designed Show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels and more.